1: This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to a special edition of Deep State Radio. It is November 2nd when we are recording this, the day before Election Day in the United States of America um although it's november 3rd in australia and new zealand and i have heard from some of those people that said you know like get on with it uh we are joined here today for our discussion about this momentous week um by our two founding regulars rosa brooks of georgetown university law school who those of you who would have video could see us sitting there wearing a biden harris hat uh and looking very darn stylish in it in alexandria virginia hi rosa how are you Hi, David. And at the American Enterprise Institute, um, the head of the foreign policy and national security programs there, we of course have Corey Shockey. How are you doing, Corey?
0: Oh, I am holding on to the tiara of optimism with both hands today, David.
1: Well, that is your responsibility. Um,
3: Clinging with bloody fingers.
1: Exactly. (laughs) And we are pleased to be joined today by um, a gentleman who's a new guest who is with an organization that I have long admired, the Berggruen Institute. Nils Gilman is the vice president of programs there and the deputy editor of, okay, Nils, NEMA magazine? Noema. Noema magazine.
2: Um,
3: that sounds like No Nema.
2: <laughs> well, you,
3: re- you reconsider.
2: Yeah, you know it's really hard to come up with an original name for anything these days because every single URL has been, uh, for every real word, has been squatted on by somebody. So it was pretty hard. We considered a bunch of things. But everything is copyrighted already. So we went with something a little bit, uh, I guess obscure. Well,
1: you're a little bit in sort of prince territory there where you pick that symbol and nobody really knows how to pronounce it. But uh, you know, it adds a certain kind of uh, certain kind of mystique to what's going on. Um, you know, you guys are all like heavyweight intellectuals with big intellectual credentials. Uh, and Corey and Rosa, you and I have been talking about, you know Trump and the threats of Trump and the politics of this and the global consequences for five years, more than five years. Um, and so rather than getting right in on the intellectual, Can comment
3: on my age, David. No,
1: you started in high school, and I, you know, I rather than getting into the sort of heavy analysis at first. It's the day before election day, uh, Rosa. What do you feel? How do you feel today, Rosa?
3: I I am like a Buddhist. I have emptied my heart of, of feelings. I wish for nothing. I hope for nothing. I accept the flow of the universe.
1: Corey, that sounds like Rosa's <laughs> full of shit to me, but... Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> How do, you, how do you feel, Corey, or how do you feel about what Rosa just said?
0: <laughs> I admire Rosa for uh, jostling herself through this anxious time with mockery and self-mockery because I, one of the things I have always loved best about our sparkly intellectual friend, Rosa, um, is just
3: how funny <laughs> she is. I'm being set up here, Corey. <laughs> nope. Statement of fact.
1: Well, how, how are you feeling, Corey? How do you feel this day before this election? You know, I've, I was thinking about you, actually, because I've been watching these stories about people boarding up stores in Washington and California and other places across the country on the day before Election Day, which has never happened as far as I know, Mm -hmm. in the history of election days, I've been around for, and you have very finely honed sensibilities on these things, Corey. and I, I thought you would be particularly offended by that.
0: Well, I'm not offended by it, but it does make me sad and I have actually been ardently praying that it proves wholly unnecessary because I hope that the people calculating risk for businesses and apartment buildings who are boarding up in advance of the election, um, I prayerfully hope that they have underestimated the decency of our fellow Americans, that this will be an election uh, in which we remind ourselves, who we are as a divided country that respects the rule of law and norm, and in which we can uh, elect or appoint judges whose politics don't determine their legal rulings, um, and that we walk ourselves back from this cliff.
1: So Nels, you're new to this. I'm I'm sorry,
0: one other thing, David, can I add one other thing? Of course. The thing I am most scared of is that the President of the United States is actively encouraging violence and voter intimidation. And I don't think we've ever seen that before. We certainly haven't seen it in the last hundred years.
1: Yeah, no, and he's definitely doing it. He, he was cheering on the people who trying to drive a Biden bus off the road. He's cheered on um, so-called militias in Michigan. He has uh, fomented this kind of unrest wherever he could. Nils, you're in, uh, in California right now, is that correct? That's right. And um, uh, clearly there's somewhat different perspective there. Um, uh, I, I spent a year growing up in Berkeley when my father was teaching there and felt it was a kind of a little bubble of sanity, although it's not always viewed that
2: way by the rest of the world. Um, How does does this all look to you? Well, I have a couple of reactions. First of all, just reacting to what Corey said, I think part of what has happened, the reason why people are boarding up, for example, is partly in response to things that are happening right away. But I think a lot of people um, on the left, broadly speaking, feel like they overestimated the decency of the American people in 2016. I mean, I remember even though the polls were much closer, I was pretty confident that they were probably off in favor of Hillary turned out to be the other way around. Um, but the reason I thought they were going to be off in favor of Hillary is I just didn't think that there was going to be enough people in the country who would be willing to vote for somebody as nakedly indecent as Donald Trump. Um, and you know I've sort of vowed that I'm not going to make that same mistake again, but I realized that in not making that same mistake again, I may be overcompensating in the other direction. So I hope you're right, Corey, that in fact, this country does have its decencies together. Um, Specifically to answer your question though, David, about what it looks like from California, I started really thinking about this stuff actually not so much in my current job, but in my previous job. My previous job was as the associate chancellor uh, at UC Berkeley, as a matter of fact. And I saw there um, in my last couple of years all sorts of clashes, uh, street clashes between, uh, Berkeley became a kind of a staging area for uh, various right-wing, on the one hand, and Antifa groups on the other, to literally sort of have battles in certain parks in uh, in the city of Berkeley. It became a kind of a flashpoint. Didn't really, and it, it, it spilled over into campus one day. In fact, just 10 days after Trump was inaugurated, there was uh, the somewhat infamous uh, Milo-Yiannopoulos riot that happened in the street. And, you know, working through that over the course of the spring of 17 really taught me a lot about the way in which Trump operates. Um, I, I'll just share one story about that, just to give you a sense. So th- this Milo Yiannopoulos riot happened on uh, February 2nd, uh, 2017. So it's just, uh, you know, 13 days, two weeks after the, after Trump's inauguration. And, you know, Milo came in, he was going to try to speak. Uh, we had planned, obviously, insufficiently to try to provide security so he'd be able to speak. And then all of a sudden, something that had never happened before, you know, 150 masked people stormed in from uh, South Berkeley and came in and disrupted the the event. Um, And and it was a scene from hell, actually, because thousands of people were gathered in the outskirts around Sproul Plaza. There were four news helicopters flashing spotlights onto the campus. There was a big bonfire. There was blaring death metal. It was really a scene that really resembled hell in a lot of ways. (laughs) And so we dealt with that the whole night, eventually mutual aid was called in and, and the rioters dispersed. Um, and I, I finally went home, got home, drank a mug of scotch, went to bed and at four o'clock in the morning, my phone starts buzzing, buzz, 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 buzz. And every and I finally wake up and I look at it with eyed, and I have all these text messages from various friends saying, have you seen what the president has tweeted? Have you seen what the president has tweeted? And what Trump did in his tweet the following morning is he said, If Berkeley won't let conservative speakers speak, we're going to yank federal funding. So what happened next, actually, is the part that's interesting in this story. So I I just I just rolled over and went to bed. I said he can't do that; it's irrelevant.
1: But our media operations after after a mug of scotch, I'm not surprised that you you (laughs) you Um,
2: rolled back to sleep. Our media people started fielding calls from uh, journalists all over the country, saying, "How much federal funding do you get?" Right. And so they started to try to figure out how much federal funding do we get from one source and another. Right. And I kept saying, we don't have to answer those questions. He can't yank our federal funding. He doesn't have to have the authority to do that. They said, but we have to respond to the media. We're used to the uh, normal media operation responds to queries from reporters. Right. And so we were supposed to do that. And then as as the story evolved over the course of the day, say, well, actually, he can't yank it just from Berkeley. he would have to yank it from the whole UC system. So then calls went into all the different UC systems uh, campuses, how much federal funding are you getting? And they all of their media operations get spun up. And then they sort of realize that people realize actually, he can't just do it to UC UC system. He can, he'd have to do it to all public universities. And so then public universities across the country start to get these kinds of phone calls about how much federal funding do they get? And one tweet of Trump's had literally spun up hundreds of thousands of man hours of media and crisis media management at universities across the country. And that was a win for him. That was what he wanted. He never intended to do this. He doesn't have the power to do it. But because he got inside of our OODA loop, he was able to sort of distract, you know, the enemy institution for days and days and days. It was insane.
1: Yeah, well, you know, I think you're getting to something which is a bigger cultural issue here. It resonates for me because when I was a little kid, as I said, my dad taught at Berkeley, it was 1967. I was a little kid. I, I remember this in part because Sean Connery died this week. And and I remember going to downtown Berkeley to watch movie Thunderball with my brother. It was the first movie I was ever allowed to go see um, on, on, on my own. But um, it was the beginning of kind of summer of love, hippie times. We would drive into Haight-Ashbury and look at the hippies um, and of course, 68 proved to be a, a, a year where there was considerably more violence because of the deaths of, of Martin Luther King and, and Robert F. Kennedy, and it was a much more tumultuous year. But there was never a moment in that period, and I, there were other people, I suppose, who, who lamented it all, but the, the period was full of this sort of sense of unrest but, but hope. Unrest, but you know that this was happening in France as well, um, and and and, and in '68 and and beyond. Then you know in the Czech, Czechoslovakia and so forth. There is this kind of sense of rebirth that comes from from revolution, and th- th- there is this sense of foreboding, Rosa, that is associated with the 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 fostering of these divisions there's this sense you know tomorrow is supposed to be a celebration of democracy and 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 for many people it's kind of a day of dread because there not only is there the threat of violence but there's a threat which has been articulated pretty clearly of a presidential coup that it might, you know, that they might just blow the whistle on democracy. Now, with some luck, they won't have the power to do that. But, but it's it's a it's just not a feeling I've ever experienced in my life. Now, am I overstating that? Do you have a, that same kind of sense of apprehension?
3: No, I mean, yeah, I I, I certainly have a sense of apprehension. Um, <clears throat> And, and I don't know if you're overstating it. Uh, you know, I didn't live through 1968. Uh, I, I was a child in the 1970s. I know that this country has gone through periods in which there has been frequent political violence in the past. And, you know, not only obviously the, the the late 60s, the assassinations of Martin Luther King, uh, JFK, Bobby Kennedy, um, but also the 1970s and you know the era of the Weather Underground and and anarchist you know, left wing terror groups and so forth. And, um, you know, when you when you look at certain measures, when you look at crime rates, when you look at the number of police officers killed on duty, uh, when you look at terrorist incidents, both globally and in the United States, there have been within, you know, within the last 50, 60 years, there have been bad periods uh, for the United States. So, so, so I, I don't know how to compare this to that. In terms of the level of threat, I, I really don't. Um, I guess I, I guess I feel uh, simultaneously a sense of a real foreboding, but also hope for real renewal. I, I mean, you were David. You were sort of saying in 1968, it felt a little scary, but it also felt like the world was maybe on the cusp of very positive change. And in some ways, that was that was accurate, right? That this was the era of the civil rights movement, the emergence of the women's rights movement. You know that we did begin that was a it was an important period in which the united states and the globe began to move towards a much more inclusive form of politics than we had previously had um although obviously we're not there yet and 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 i i feel a little bit that way right now i i i feel like we are you know i it's hard to find a metaphor that isn't ridiculously overused but that we're you know we're we're sort of walking on a tightrope and if we you know, if we, in one, on one side of it, you know, looms this precipice full of, you know, flesh eating vultures and Ivanka Trump and you know, God knows what, right? Um, horrors, authoritarian horrors lie on one side of it. And we could go that way uh, and it could be very, very bad. And, and I always, as you know, um, I always think that we underestimate the Possibility that really, 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 really bad things could happen. You know that this is Mills, uh, you're a Californian. You know that we, we, we have millions of people who live on top of the San Andreas Fault and are kind of like, well, there hasn't been an earthquake yet, so I'm sure everything's fine, and everybody will feel that way until the day there's an earthquake and it's catastrophic, right? And, and so I always feel like never underestimate the possibility of genuine catastrophe, civil war, etc. On the other hand, I feel like it might, that might not happen. You know, Biden, Biden could win decisively, sufficiently decisively that Republican leaders in the GOP all sort of say to him, sorry, dude, you lost. You know, we're gonna go for 2024. Uh, meanwhile, you need to exit stage right here. Um, that does not by any stretch of the imagination mean that our troubles are over. Um, you know, all those all those right-wing extremist violent groups will still be there. All of the nastiness that was unleashed and given, given permission and praise from our president will still be there. We'll still have to deal with it. But if that happens, if there is a Biden administration, um, it, particularly if the Democrats are able to take the Senate, I also think we do have some real and astonishing opportunities for real renewal and we've talked about this before the ways in which the trump administration for better or for worse in many ways for worse but in a few ways for better has sort of shaken up american ideological categories which have been so rigid for so long and and widened the sphere of political discourse brought together lots and lots of strange bedfellows nils and i have been working closely in in our transition integrity project exercises with lots of uh, neocon never Trumpers who we previously would not really have had much contact with. And there's lots of common ground. And, and I think that the the possibility of not of a real renewal of American conversations about politics and culture are there too on the other side. You know, one side lies the the broken glass and Ivanka Trump, and the other side lies a genuine possibility of, of renewal will be very, very difficult, but there is real hope there at the same time. So I'm kind of, I'm not, I'm not all doom and gloom. I'm, I'm sort of 50% doom and gloom and 50% excitement and hope.
1: Corey, how does that, how does that make you feel? You know, I mean, Rosa's halfway there.
3: Well, um,
0: I have about the same distribution of apprehension and hopefulness that Rosa does which i think is the first i'm genuine <laughs> it's
3: all glass full glass half empty corey
0: <laughs> i am genuinely scared uh, by the number of my fellow republicans who have been enabling the president's unconstitutional and reprehensible behavior i am also however you know it it does Feel like this is the last gasp, like of an America that, um, in which Donald Trump's policies could be supported by a majority of voters. I it does feel like we are living in genuinely historic times, and and that. Uh, I think what historians two generations from now who are teaching eighth grade history classes in American history will say about this time is that it's remarkable that so much change was achieved with so little violence, the passing from power of an outdated, um, not just an outdated elite, but outdated conceptions of... um, who counts as, as, you know, who deserves to be involved in decision-making. I, I do feel like we are, this election, we are feeling the last gasp of a collapsing and I think uh, an order that, that views scarcity of opportunity, scarcity of, um, of stature, and opening the aperture into an era of inclusiveness and an, in, and an era in which we define success not by exclusion of others, but by inclusion. That is a, a definition of success that is um, one of plenty, not one of scarcity.
1: This week, we held our first virtual event. The discussion was led by Ed Luce, and it featured conversation about my new book, Traitor, A History of American Betrayal from Benedict Arnold to Donald Trump. If you missed it and you're a member, uh, and you should be a member, and if you're not a member, you should become a member, but you can watch it in its entirety on the DSRnetwork.com. But speaking of membership, we have a very special offer because now is a really good time to become a member. If you become a founding insider, you'll receive a Deep State Radio mask, which will make you safer, and a complimentary signed copy of my book. We bought a bunch of them, so bookstores shouldn't worry. We bought some at full price. Um, And uh, if you become a a founding member now, um, you will get both the mask and the book and the membership. Member benefits also include uh, ad-free listing. You get access to our members-only Slack community, so you can post questions all the time. You get automatic discounts on swag. You'll get discounts on all upcoming virtual events, and we plan to do a lot more of those. And soon, members will be able to attend select tapings of Deep State Radio. So, to learn more, visit the dsrnetwork.com and select Membership Levels. And if you don't want to do that right now, but you do want to buy the book, go to your local bookseller and buy a copy of Trader. I think you will like it. It was certainly written with the listeners of Deep State Radio in mind. Thank you. So, Nils, before you came on, I was saying that I was struck by the grounding of the institute you're now associated with in a sort of philosophical views. and if you listen to Rosa, you listen to Corey, um, and I think both of them are right. And I think if you observe the world, you sense that we may be at one of these sort of moments of sort of philosophical struggle as a country. Um, and it's not the false Republican Democrat struggle. We're a republic. We're a democracy. We're federalist. We're 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 um, uh, uh, you know strong central government kind of thing. But it's it, it's more. To me, anyway, and I, you've written about this. Um, it's kind of what's the social contract? You know, it goes back. It goes back to the sort of the grounding of so. Why do we do this? What's in it for all of us in this society that is grotesquely unequal, uh, not just in terms of wealth distribution, but in terms of distribution of power? Um, and 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 maybe you know, we don't. The world doesn't resolve these things in the thirty years war or in the enlightenment or in eighteen forty eight or or the twentieth century. It does it in increments. And I'm just wondering if you get that is that is it you know am I again am I overstating this? Is this just you know politics as usual or is the United States, does it have to come to grips with what does it mean to be the 21st century United States when for more than half of that century, more than half of the population is going to be people we once thought of as minorities, when it'll be the first entire century where everybody was connected to everybody else by technology um, and everything that everybody did was visible um, to everybody else and we we were connected to the rest of the world in a different way and and that this really requires not just going back and thinking you know what do we need to fiddle with inside the constitution but a step further back into why are we all doing this together
2: yeah well, that's obviously a huge question i i want to go back to the previous question you were, or the previous point you were making david about 1968 and compared to this moment um, i was talking to my Father the other night about this and you know he was a in graduate school during 1968 and had just gotten married Um, and uh, you know my mother moved from Denmark and into this country that was literally in flames and she wondered what what it felt like the wheels were coming off the bus at that point but in some sense the institutions didn't feel under threat I think what's different now and this with this election in particular is there's a, a sense that the institutional architecture of the country itself could be smashed if, uh, you know, if if Trump gets his way, to put it bluntly, um, in a way that I don't think was quite up for grabs in the same way in 68. Things were in some ways worse. I mean, you know, there was, you know, uh, you know 100, 100 Americans were coming home in body bags every week in 1968, um, there was the Tet Offensive, there were the assassinations you referred to, there were the riots, there was the Democratic National Convention. I mean, 68 was really bad and in some ways much worse than than our current moment, but it didn't feel as if the entire institutional architecture of the democracy was at stake. Now, the question is why are we in this moment where there is this sense that one party is willing to sacrifice the institutional architecture, at least risk sacrificing the institutional architecture. And I think it's precisely because we're at this inflection point that you're referring to, David. And it's an inflection point that scares the hell out of that particular party. You talked about the historians in two generations and how they're going to narrate this. Well, one problem with historians, and I say this as a sometime historian, a defrocked historian perhaps, um, is that they can't help but be teleological. The story they're going to tell about what the Trump administration meant is going to depend entirely on what happens in the next few years. So even though the events have already happened of 2016 to 2020 for the most part, If the institutions come apart, then historians will tell one story. If the institutions hold and renew, then they'll tell another story. So I want to just give a metaphor about the way they'll probably tell the story if the institutions hold And your version that this is the last gasp of a dying order. The story they'll tell is something like what the story they tell in California is about what happened to the Republican Party in the 1990s and the aughts. In 1994, there was an election where the less talented female scion of a political dynasty was nominated for an election post that she really had no business being nominated for and went on to lose in an election she had no business losing to a Republican who ran an entirely racist campaign in order to hold on to power for one last time. And it worked. Pete Wilson got re-elected in 1994. Um, and, uh, you know, he held on to power for one more round, Okay. The problem was that the demography kept moving right, in the state of California, and the Republicans, with the one weird exception of Arnold Schwarzenegger in the recall election in 2002, haven't won anything statewide since, because the, the, the demography kept moving and it was the last chance the Republicans had to run that particular playbook in this state. The difficulty, of course, is that there are many Republicans across the country who know what happened in California And they too can see the writing on the wall. The reason why, and Stephen Miller, who was just coming of political consciousness at this very moment in in the mid-1990s, understood what happened, and that's why they are determined to change the demographic direction of the country. They recognize if we keep moving this way, yes, this is not going to be possible to maintain the old white elite East Coast power structure the way it's been for, you know, since the founding of the country. And they feel, therefore, that the basis of the country as they understand it is being taken away from them. And they genuinely feel that. I don't think that that's bullshit on their part. And they're also determined to stop it. And that's why they're willing to sacrifice the institutions. They weren't willing to sacrifice the institutions in order to save them, to use another 1968 analogy.
1: I feel inclined to go to Corey next to to respond to that. And then I'll go to Rosa. Um,
0: I... So I watched the movie, The Trial of the Chicago 7 the other night, and I was really struck that uh, it didn't feel as hopeful as your recollections of 1968, and in particular on race issues, it was shocking. Um, uh, and that happened within your and my lifetime, David. And so um, so that gives me a frame of reference for thinking about it, which is that uh, my historian's uh, compass is slightly different than Mills's, namely, I think when you're living through historic times, you almost never can understand it because, you're in the middle of a stream with a fast, rushing current, and as Neil said, on the far side, you're going to tell the story uh, depending on whether you drown or whether you swim. I I don't recall the Pete Wilson election um, very carefully, so I can't I can't speak to the specific analogy, except to say that. Uh, rip, The ballot measure that Pete Wilson put up to deny illegal immigrants any sort of social services in California is what I recall casting the long shadow over Republican electability in the state of California.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, that that was the centerpiece of his campaign was that particular ballot measure, as well as the anti-affirmative action uh, ballot measure um and those two things which were um marketed if you will in an entirely dog whistly racialized way um were uh designed to drive up the uh republican white voting base um and it worked uh you know that that, that was the explicit strategy in the same way you know that ballot measures are often used to sort of create a a central narrative around a particular election. I mean, think about the way in which um, Karl Rove used the gay marriage issue to make that a central issue of the 2004 campaign by putting anti-gay marriage initiatives on the ballot in uh, six or seven states, if I recall correctly. So Pete Wilson used that kind of strategy in the 1994 campaign and 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 that was the ba- and you're absolutely right. That uh, the backlash against those ballot measures and against the racial language, the racialized dog whistly language that was used to market them, um, is what caused the es- essentially demise of the Republican Party in California. And, and now for better and both and for worse, it's a one party state.
0: Well, uh, so that's where I was headed, which was to say that um the that. Wilson and California Republicans bet that they could. They had the same kind of um, uh, recrudescence of the past that Trump is trying to market, and and you're right. It absolutely devastated Republicans' chances for statewide office in California, and. We, And it showed that only a, you know, only lightly tinged Republican like Arnold Schwarzenegger could get statewide office. But the California Republican Party has remained um, uh, more extreme than Republican parties where they are electable for statewide office. That is, it didn't moderate or attenuate Republican the the bulk of voting Republicans in California. And so I think that does suggest cause for concern about how will we think about um, the 42% or so of Americans who continue to support Donald Trump? How do we find a way for uh, dealing with that? other than just pointing out that you're never going to win an election unless you're more unless you open the aperture of your ideas.
2: So uh, I, I, if I could just talk a little bit more about this California case because I'm not sure that your listeners necessarily know about it but and it's an analogy or it's a it's a historical episode it may not play out the same way at the national level. Um, But if we're trying to think what a post-Trump era might look like nationally, and we think about the California example, you're absolutely right, Corey, that it did not, the the fact that the Republicans became unelectable at a statewide level has done nothing to moderate, if anything, the opposite, the California Republican Party's ideological positions. Um, Meanwhile, the demography has kept moving, but the California Republican Party, let's recall, have, again, with the weird exception of Schwarzenegger, have not won, uh, have not been able to win uh, or control the legislatures, have not been able to win statewide offices at any level since 1995. So for 25 years, they've been in the wilderness, not moderating themselves. But in the aughts, uh, they were able to effectively completely block any kind of reasonable measures of... You know uh to deal with the many problems that uh, California was having California was probably the most dysfunctional state from a governance perspective in the union uh for the first 10 years of this of this century um and you know this is directly related to why the Bagruin institute was set up was to sort of try to institute initially reforms in the state of California to make it more governable and this is one of the things I worry about is that the trump faction uh in the in the country, partly because of the way in which the US Senate is constructed, um, is going to be able to exercise a blocking faction on the opportunities for renewal that Rosa was talking about. So even if the Republican Party, you know, imagine if Trump loses Texas tomorrow and Texas turns decisively blue, it's hard to imagine how the Republican Party is ever going to be able to win national elections again, as, as long as people get to vote and the votes get counted. But they're still going to be able to potentially, through the Senate and through the courts, Block progressive reform and the kind of renewal Rose is talking about for for years, if not decades, and that is the lesson of what happened in California. It wasn't until 2010 that we really got to the point where there was a breakthrough in governance, and uh, the Democrats achieved super, minorities, super majorities, excuse me, and were able to actually, you know, institute changes to make the state slightly less dysfunctional. Um, And that's what we could have it happen in the country nationally, is that we could be looking at the 2020s into the 2030s with, you know, the Coney Barrett court striking down progressive reforms here and here and there uh, for the indefinite future.
1: Yeah, no, and that's, by the way, not an accident, right? That's a 30-year plan of a group of people that have been trying to, who recognize the demographic changes that are taking place and want to wanted to find ways to cling to power using other institutional structures. And that's why the mission that you guys are on at the Brook Gruen Institute is going to be a national challenge, not a California challenge going forward for where we are. But if I may, in the last part of our conversation here um, uh, with with Rosa, to take her to her darker place, um, the, the the reality is that what we're talking about here is sort of two kinds of analyses going back and forth. One is the center of standard political analysis, one side wins, the other side wins, there's ebb, there's flow. Then in, in Nils's latter point, we're talking about a dysfunctional uh, political system in which a minority is able to exert power through a variety of gambits and 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 as a result undermine the intent of democracy. But there's another place everything can go. And and that's the one, and you know, I'm sorry to bring it up and I'm not doing it to be alarmist, but but it's it's the one that you're talk about periodically, Rosa. And that is that things don't have to be within that frame. Things can get much worse. And I have to say, as we are talking about all of this, and I sort of see Twitter and usually when we're doing these shows, Nils, I watch Twitter to see who Rosa and Corey are talking to when they're not actually doing doing <laughs> the show. Um, and 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 by the way, Rosa, I saw that you took the moment to tweet something
0: at. I was tweeting your yeah. stuff out. Support uh, his book. Yeah,
1: you were supporting my book. Yeah. I'm real, I'm really grateful for that. But having said that, I also noticed two things in Portland, Oregon, liberal Oregon. The governor has the National Guard on standby. In Chicago, Illinois, there's video of the National Guard rolling into town right now. And perhaps most chillingly for me, and it doesn't have to do with America, but it reminds me of how things can go off track. Right now, in central Vienna, where my father grew up, there is massive gunfire around the synagogue, probably the synagogue he went to. Um, Which is part of, undoubtedly, we will see some aspect, one side or the other, of violent trends that exist within European society that have existed there for a long time and periodically taken things off the rail. And when I see somebody saying, shots fired, many shots near a synagogue in Vienna, to me, because that's where my father escaped from, you know, it says... The shit can hit the fan. It can be not a discussion about politics, but something far more um, far more critical. And I, you know, tomorrow we're on a knife's edge. And it might not involve violence in the streets if the president of the United States can use the rigged courts that we're talking about here and claim several close elections strategically for himself and undermine the will of the people. That's a coup the same as driving a bunch of tanks into the presidential palace is a coup. And I, you know I'm just wondering how you know how realistic, how how should we grapple with the fact that that's part of this equation now?
3: It's really hard to know what to do with that. I mean, it's interesting, obviously, um you know, Nils and I have both spent uh, a much higher percentage of our of our last nine months than I think either of us ever expected. On, on both planning and then commenting on the exercises we did through the Transition Integrity Project. And Corey, too, was part of some of those initial shaping conversations. Um, and, and you know one of the things that I think we started saying very early that was both necessary to say and brought us under some criticism was things could get so much worse than you think. Um, you know, and we've talked about this before. This the sort of the prevailing metaphor of the guardrails of democracy is is so fundamentally misleading, uh, insofar as it 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 implies, um, you know, we've all been on these amusement park rides where you're, you know, you're careening around on the roller coaster and there are no guardrails, and then you get to the tippy tippy weird part. And these little metal things go like boing and they pop right up and save you from, you know, hurtling to your death over the side and, and we think of the guardrails of democracy as sort of similar, you know, these these mechanical things that are just built into the system. And you don't need to make them go up, they just go up to save you at the important moment. And, and that that metaphor is, is so profoundly wrong, you know. To the extent that there are guardrails of democracy those guardrails consist of, of human lives and human commitments and human consciences and human decisions um, often often human decisions that are made under under pressure in chaotic moments at and sometimes at great personal risk um, and those are the guardrails and you don't get those guardrails going up if you're not prepared you know, because one thing we 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 know about humans, and we know this from the Holocaust, and we know this from the Rwanda genocide, and the Cambodian genocide, and the Bosnian uh, and former Yugoslavian civil wars. We know that humans put under pressure by a sudden s- sudden upsurge of violence, threats, uh, uh, extra legal actions, and so on. Most of them don't do the right thing not because they're evil people, but because they're scared. You know, this is what this is what uh, generations of social psychology research tells us too. You know, that, that they, they look around and they kind of look at what the people next to them are doing and what their boss is doing and what their family's doing and everybody else is looking around too going, oh shit, well, we should just, you know, go along to get along or get along to go along or whatever the heck that phrase is, I forget. You know what I mean? Um, and they make the wrong decision, and then if, then things go horrifically bad. And ten years later, everybody looks back and goes, "Oh, how could that have happened? We were all such nice people, you know." And 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 so I think I think one of the things that the Transition Integrity Project tried to do was to say, um, "Hey, everybody, there's a set of risks that range from a kind of quiet push in you know bloodless coup in which our institutions are just subverted." and half of the american people don't even notice but democracy's gone um best case scenario worst case scenario is is a real descent into violence and chaos and these are real risks we cannot quantify them the metaphor that nils nils used at one point which i've been repeating to everybody else is you know if somebody said hey there's you know there's a unknown chance, but it could be as high as one in a hundred that somebody's going to burst into your office with a machete and start slashing. Do you just shrug and go about your business? Or do you say, Ooh, gee, you know, maybe it's time to get better locks on the door or whatever, you know, that even a small, these are, you know, these low, low probability, high consequence events, even a small possibility of things going horrifically bad. You need to think now, not wait until the emergency about what you're going to do. And, I you know I think we came under a little bit of criticism for saying this because there were there were some who reacted by kind of, by saying, oh you guys are so alarmist you're just going to scare people quit talking about these you know scary things that probably aren't going to happen, and and our counter argument has always been, we sure hope they don't happen. But whether they happen or not is actually has a whole lot to do with what we do between now and election day. And this was back months ago, obviously. I mean, now we're getting a little close to take meaningful action. Um, you know, that that is, again, I mean, to use a different metaphor, as I've said before, it's, it's like COVID. How bad will COVID be uh, at the end of January? The answer to that question is not a fixed answer based on, you know, probabilistic curves. Now, the answer to that question is, well, it depends what you do. You know, are you going to wear a mask or you're not going to wear a mask? You're going to go to the bar or you're not going to go in the bar? It's that, you know, all that kind of stuff that, that, that if you don't, if you can't face those risks squarely, even with the acknowledgement that we have no idea how to measure their probability. And Nate Silver had this sort of slightly funny. Column at one point where he was like, "Okay, guys, here's my forecast. Here's how I did my forecast. But guess what? I have absolutely no fucking idea how to factor in the risk of civil war, or coups, or anything like that. So there's a pretty big asterisk next to my forecast because I do statistics. I'm a I'm a pollster. I don't do political stuff. Um, who knows? Um, so I, I don't know how scared we should be. Um, I, I I really don't. I mean, scared enough to be scared." scared enough that I still think you know it's it's and everybody I talk to now I say it's not too late to call all your republican friends who are in elected office and so on and say what are you doing make a pre-commitment no vigilante violence etc cetera, etc cetera. it's not too late to call your local city council your local chief of police etc and say the same things um you know um other than that I think we're at the sort of cross your fingers and pray stage um I would like to have a conversation I don't think we have time today but but depending on what the outcome is in the next week, I hope that in one of our future episodes soon, you know, there's a. I hope we will be in a position to have the conversation that I think Nils and Corey were getting at. Um, what do you do when your institutions have been so badly broken? What do you do when you're, or at least one of your parties, and frankly, I think in some ways, both of our parties, have been so badly broken, how do you rebuild if you if you are if we are f- so fortunate as to have that opportunity and we may have that opportunity and I and I you know I think there's at least a 50% chance that we will have that opportunity. Um, what, where do we start? you know, where where Cory? Where do Republicans start? Where do Democrats start? Do they start separately? Do they start together? Do we have a big, giant, you know, start over Palooza event, which of course would have to be on Zoom, (laughs) in which we say, okay, everybody, you know, what the heck just happened to our political system? What are we going to do to make sure this doesn't happen again? How do we reinvent American politics? You know, what is that process? Where do we begin it? Who needs to be part of it? How do we get them to be part of that? You know, how do we bring in the voices that are often excluded from those conversations? And that's, I hope we will have the luxury of having that conversation rather than the where's the bunker entrance conversation. Um, I'm optimistic that we will. Uh, and and if we get the chance to have that conversation, I can think of absolutely nothing more urgent after this election.
1: Well, I I totally agree with you. And I, you know, I didn't really know where this conversation was going to go when we started, but I'm so glad we had it and so glad that you could join us, Nils, and 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 of course good to continue this very long ongoing conversation with with Corey and with Rosa. Um, But I think Rosa's point is well taken. Uh, And I think that, you know, there is there will be a tendency, if things turn out in a certain way tomorrow, for most of the folks in Washington to hit the reset switch, go back to norm and have a discussion about whether we should increase or decrease the defense budget by 2% and and not have a discussion about you know, what is the underpinning philosophy of this? Why are we all in this? What is the social contract? And also related to this issue of how do you build the institutions? I think an issue that all of you have touched upon is how do you restore the guardrails? Because before you can get in the plane and decide where you want to fly the plane, I used to be a pilot. So I think these way before you get, yeah, I, Pa- David, private private
3: pilot. I never knew this about you. I yeah. didn't either.
1: Well, but before you get in the plane, you you've and, and fly someplace, you gotta make sure the plane is airworthy, right? You gotta make sure that it actually flies. And unless you've got certain basic boxes checked about guardrails, about what is um uh required in order to successfully have a functioning fair government you can't get onto those next con- conversations either. so I, I think the the point from that i'm taking away from this is here we are at the at, at at sort of the knife's edge about which way things can go and having come this close i hope we learn that we've got to go to some foundational questions before we go back to the incrementalism
3: and can I just can I just riff for one moment off your pilot metaphor? Because again, those guardrails can't just be a, a little checklist or a bunch of mechanical things. That that you can't forget the human element of the guardrails. And there was a famous study done, which I I teach in a in a seminar I teach at Georgetown called "Good and Evil," which is really an excuse. To <laughs> Do you jointly teach
1: on... that with somebody who teaches the good part?
2: Hey. <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs> um, no, I mean it's basically a social psychology and law seminar, and there's a famous study on obedience in the airplane cockpit, which some of you may have may have read, and it's very much in the tradition of sort of Erwin Staub's work and uh, Stanley Milgram's work. Um, so it turns out, right, and this is this is I think from 20 or so years ago. It turns out that when you when you do the sort of post mortem audits of plane crashes, um, it often turns out that the co-pilot knew what was going wrong and could see it. Like, oh, holy shit, we're about to fly into a mountain. But that the the hierarchy and the culture of obedience uh, and conformity to which uh, airline commercial pilots um, and many private pilots, many of whom are former military, had been trained in, was such that you do not question or challenge the pilot. Um, and so you would get these situations where the co-pilot would be like, uh, sir, I think there's a mountain we're going to fly into, and the pilot would be like, oh, don't be silly, there's no mountain. And the co-pilot would be like, uh, oh, okay, sir, and would shut up instead of saying, you know, I'm sorry, no, we're, I'm, I'm taking control of the plane because we're about to fly into a mountain. And so they would fly into the mountain, everybody would die. Now, I, I exaggerate slightly, but this did more or less happen. Uh, in multiple occasions. And this actually led to a real revamping of how pilots and co-pilots are trained to try to figure out not just how do you teach people do that safety checklist where they're saying, hey, do we have enough fuel, you know, have we de-iced, etc. But also to be saying, um, how what are you going to do if something goes wrong and the senior person doesn't seem to notice it and the junior person does notice it and what is the protocol for that and now pilots actually are trained with simulations and scenario-based training and sort of you know first you say hey sir i've got a little bit of a concern here then you say hey sir i got a really big concern here then you say hey sir you don't seem to be noticing this if you don't do anything about this concern i'm going to take the controls in 5 minutes then you say i'm taking the controls we're about to fly into a mountain and 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 you need to the the shoring up those guardrails needs to incorporate that aspect too that human aspect that says these guardrails are fundamentally made up of people and they work only when we have a culture that says we are committed to these norms. We have thought about what it looks like when they are broken. We have thought about dissent and how we need to create a safe space for dissent and respect that. We have thought about what we as individuals and collectively are going to do, you know, and that that has got to be such a crucial piece of it as well.
1: Well, Nils, we, I, you know, that's a lot of work we've given you, and good luck with it. Um, <laughs> I, I I I hope you, I hope you don't mind that that's the direction this all took uh, on your first visit here.
2: This is uh this was great. Thank you for having me on. And I will say I, I would love to join if we have a conversation about the renewal question because this is in fact exactly what the Berggruen Institute is trying to take on. Um, is thinking about how do we do the renewal we need for our democracy for the way you know the capitalism functions so it can become more inclusive. Um, so that we can work more uh, effectively together on a global scale on planetary challenges. So that's exactly what I do in my day job and I'd love to come back and talk to you about it some other time. Well let's let's let's
1: let's do that. In fact, why don't we uh, we'll reach out to you and maybe we can put together a little roundtable discussion, a different kind of a thing, maybe a webinar where we can get some people to participate from the audience. that would be helpful to what you're doing and helpful to our general mission, which is just to stir up trouble. (laughs) Um, But, uh, you know, good trouble, as as we say. Uh, In any event, thank you for doing this. Thank you, Corey. Thank you, Rosa. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, Good luck uh, tomorrow, uh, America. Um, And uh, we'll be back with a, a show on Wednesday and a show on Thursday, looking at where we stand in terms of of, of the election and, you know, with some luck, you know, shows in weeks after that, if there are weeks after that. And um, otherwise, you know, we'll let you know what gulag we end up in. Um, <laughs> uh, but, uh, <laughs> pardon me?
3: Thank you for ending on that note of good cheer.
1: Yeah, yeah that cheerful cheerful note. But um, uh, in the meantime, also try to remember to, to stay healthy, everybody. And if you want more info on all these shows, go to the DSRnetwork.com. Oh, and- Thanks very much.
3: And vote, please.
1: And vote, yes. No, by all means, vote. And if you um, can help others vote, help them vote, too. Bye bye.